The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. And good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program at hashtag Big Beacon on Twitter. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're fortunate to be joined by Ann Kaiser, CEO of Project uh, Engine. Uh, Welcome to the show, Ann. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well, and I've uh, got a bit of a cloudy fall day here in uh, Douglas, Michigan, and and um, glad that you could uh, join us. And um, you're and we like to get to know our guests a little bit. But you're an edu- edu- educator, an engineer, an entrepreneur, a leader of a company making a difference in en- engineering education, uh, K-12. And in a moment, we'll explore some of those your thoughts about those things. But let's uh, go back to the log cabin. What were some of the early influences? It put you on this special path. Um, you know, I, I think I was sort of raised um, with in a house full of learning. My mother was a diehard reader. Um, she was a math teacher, uh, and I remember reading her calculus notebooks when I was young, and I was fascinated by that. Um, I, I I think it was really that no one ever told me that there was anything I couldn't do. Um, and I had a pretty broad and very strong, uh, actually, Catholic education. I had some fabulous teachers. Some of my best teachers were my high school, the high school nuns who taught me. Um, and I was kind of taught that everything had equal value. So I, I sort of, you know, I gravitated quite a bit towards math and science, but, you know, I really enjoyed doing everything. Um, so that sort of set me on my career path. I uh, purposely, you know, I knew I wanted to go into something in uh, the science or math field, but I applied to some very traditional engineering schools, and at that time, um, it was even more rigid than it is now, and even as a high school senior, I knew that that was not a great environment for me, so I opted to go to Columbia University School of Engineering because you had the ability to take classes um, 
throughout the university, and I really wanted to be able to do that. I was fortunate enough to be, I believe, one of the first students that uh, participated in a program they were doing to create global engineers back in the uh, late 70s. So um, I had enough um, background that I was able to start some work on my master's degree during my senior year in engineering, and I went on to get a master's degree in international affairs. So I've always been interested in a little bit of everything and uh, enjoyed working as an engineer, but uh, after having three young children under five and multiple job transfers on the part of my husband, uh, I took some time off and then reassessed my career. So I don't know if I answered too much there or... No, it's, it's, uh appreciate hearing it, and I, I remember... I remember the seventies. They say if you remember the seventies, you weren't there. But I, I remember the seventies and and uh, early seventies uh, in engineering classes. There, there, uh, most most of us had a Y chromosome. There weren't too many double X's uh, sitting in the sitting in the chairs next to us. Well, that must have been an you, uh, interesting a time story to go along through. Those lines. I yeah. went went to a very small all girls Catholic high school. Um, and then at Columbia University, the engineering school was co-ed, I believe, since. It began in the 1860s, but you can imagine the the number of women in a class of maybe 300 engineers. We were lucky if there were 30 women, but our um, our background, you know, our our liberal arts core classes were in Columbia College, which was not co-ed. Yes. And I remember being in a small humanities seminar with just about 20 people, and the students by the second day were complaining that it wasn't fair that the professor knew my name first because I was the only woman in the class. So um, I quickly figured out there were some advantages to being unique, but, you know, I, I ended up working in the, the steel industry a lot, so you can just imagine what that old boys' network was like. Yeah, and I, I've had some, yeah, I actually, uh, this seems to be a theme in the kinds of people I meet. I, I uh, correspondent that was uh, on on oil rigs at about the same time as a as a woman and and uh, so there were I mean there must that actually would make an interesting project to assemble some of those experiences into one place and, and I and I want to we want to dig into you know how your career evolved a little bit more but um, on this show we're also uh, because of uh, Mark Somerville in my book a whole new engineer interested in what we've called unleashing experiences so um, these are experiences where either you trust yourself or someone trusts you and you go your own way and and there are telltales in your career that on a number of occasions well the very the act of of the becoming an engineer in the 70s as a woman was uh, going your own way so um, what what or who um, enabled you to unleash yourself in the, the ways you have? Hmm. Um, I think part of it was my personality, um, mm. but I also think that, you know, I, I had a number of strong role models that sort of taught me to never limit yourself. And, and I think, you know, you, when you fuse all of that together, um, you know, you... you Sort of. That's just how you pursue life. Um, yeah. Who were these? Pe- who were well, these people, and what did all, they do? My, my father died when I was the oldest of six, and I was yeah. eleven when my father died. And mm-hmm. so my mother had to obviously be incredibly strong. Um, 
and she was very much a free spirit. So I, I think I learned, you know, that I probably learned an awful lot just from that. Yep. Um, and I, I was fortunate in being in a small high school where the the teachers would go out of their way to sort of support your interest. I mean, it was, you know, obviously it was high school in the early 70s. It was still a fairly rigid curriculum. And it was a, a very high-performing school, but, you know, we, we would have, you know, nuns and lay teachers who would take time before and after school to help us pursue different interests. So I I was always sort of, you know, put in front of me that the whole world was out there. And sometimes yeah. I kind of, in a way, resented that because it made it difficult to make choices. Sure. Um, and, and I think that's sort of reflected in this sort of uh, very kind of, you know, I, zigzaggy career that I've had, which strangely enough has uh, all come together at the ripe of the old age of, I won't really fill in the blank there, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's how I, uh, I talk about my birthdays right now. Yeah, so. People can figure that out. Yeah, so, no, I but, talk about uh, my birthdays. It, and I, you know, I do think it's teachers. I mean, really, if I have to step back, um, I had a wonderful advisor in college, Professor Daniel Bashirs. Um, I had a, a great, um, actually, he was the dean of the School of International Affairs who led my um, seminar in, in the ideas of technology transfer, who was really supportive of really having more technical technical skills being brought to what, you know, was really a kind of fuzzy, nebulous world of diplomacy and international affairs. Yes. So I, I I kind of learned that everybody brings different talents to everything and that, you know, that's sort of how you have to view yourself, that you always have a talent that you can offer in any situation. Yeah, nice. And and um, and actually, let's talk about that zigzaggy career a little bit. So the your original college degree was in engineering, and then you immediately went on to get the master's at Columbia in international affairs that you alluded to. And then, if I read your resume right, you went on to work as an engineer. So um, what was it that led? You know, so you talked a little bit about what led you into engineering. There was the math and your mom's calculus notes and things like that, and some of the nuns. But what? What led you into the international affairs, and then what led you back into to work as an engineer? Um, the well, I I had a lot of um, again fabulous history teachers, and uh, the opportunity to take actually in high school a couple of world history classes. I also had um, two well, it was four years of Latin and four years of French. So I. I, I don't know, I was always fast, I guess maybe, and I travel a lot now, I guess I always had sort of that wanderlust, you know, I I, I wanted to see more. Um, the It fascinated me, you know, when I actually as an undergrad, I studied Russian. Um, so it, it sort of fascinated me that there were all these different people on the planet, I think, and that we tend to just live in our sort of little you know, central nucleus. And mm -hmm. to me, the International Affairs Program kind of offered a way to really look at the whole world. And you have to remember, this was before the Internet. Um, this was before we had, I mean, we had one huge mainframe computer at Columbia that, you know, that, that undergrads got time on at midnight. I mean, you, you probably sure. have similar stories. So yes. the world was not as connected. 
Um, and it was sort of really was in that sense of, you know, like a brave new world that, you know, starting to learn about all these different places. Um, I had thought I would, you know, go directly into something really dealing more with international affairs, but, and I, and I don't know how to say this delicately, uh, in my, when I was doing my master's degree work, I kept finding myself being not challenged enough, and it was a rigorous mm-hmm. program, but I liked that math and science component, that puzzle-solving, yep. critical thinking yep. um, part of it. So, you know, I, I went into engineering also at the time because I could make twice as much money as I could as a, far, as a foreign service <laughs> person. Sure. Um, and I... I did do, you know, a little bit of international work in that, but I it was very much drawn towards still the, the people part, so I did a lot of product and market development, um, ended up traveling a lot with that, more domestically than internationally, but it, it sort of it sort of fit the bill of what I was looking for at the time. Yeah. And so you finished out that up, you went to work, then and then... And then you alluded to this in your opening comments that uh, there were you had you had kids and and uh, you reassessed your career and you went back if I'm reading right as a as a physics and then engineering teacher, um, uh, somewhat later. Yes, so, I did. Yeah, probably around 1999. Yeah, um, and what was yeah what was it, what was your thinking then about well, that? Well, my thinking then was actually pretty practical. Um, I was you know obviously we I. My husband had had a series of transfers in that time period, so it was really challenging for us both to be working. And our youngest was just entering kindergarten, and I was, okay, I have to do something. You know, my I need something here. And uh, someone, you know, pointed out that I did have all the subject area credits needed for chemistry, physics, and math. Um, so I kind of pursued... Considering teaching, I actually had considered it for a couple of years before I jumped in and did it. <laughs> um, I thought I would do it while my children were young because the hours, quite frankly, are great um, yeah. in terms of small children or even as they get older and you have to get them to all those practices and things. I mean, all these things in life that people don't tell you you're going to have to do. Yeah. Um, and it turned out... Uh, I thought I would probably stop about when they were high school age and were independent and go back to engineering because I, I truly did enjoy the field. Um, but I got hooked on the students I was teaching. Um, you, I mean, everyone knows you don't make a lot of money in teaching. And I can tell you as someone who worked uh, as a pretty dedicated professional in the engineering field that teaching is far, far more challenging. Um, but the payback you get when you see those aha moments, when you see a young child's confidence starting to really come forward, that is worth a lot more than the money. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. I worked at a school that gave me uh, the ability to put in place the AP Physics B, which was B at that point. Now it's one and two course, and then even the AP Physics C school, I mean course. And then I, um, the principal... And this was, again, I think about 2007, so it was before there was a lot of push for K-12 engineering. The principal yep. asked me if I'd consider coming up with an engineering course. Um, so I had a, a lot of uh, freedom, a lot of creativity, um, and so, you know, I, I think that's part of why I stayed and kept teaching. 
Yeah, and, nice. And uh, it's a great. Oh, I mean, really, if you want to make a difference, be a teacher. Yeah, and we're seeing. Yeah, we're actually seeing more of that. We're seeing more of uh, engineers coming out of school and saying, "No, I want to go into teaching." And we haven't quite figured out how to make that pathway smoother um, with programs that. Um, allow that to take, you know, so you have all the teacher credits and all the mm-hmm. science and math that are in, in, embedded in engineering, and and it ends up being a do-it-yourself project that can be fairly time-consuming. There are other paths into into um, getting certification and so forth. But you did, you were doing this before um, a, a lot of this became popular. Then in 2014, you went out to uh, start a project engine as a K-12 uh, STEM consultant, and what what uh, what prompted that? Well, a couple of things. Um, as I said, I had been teaching this engineering course, which um, was basically it was engineering design. Um, it was really creative problem solving, very much project based learning. Uh, it was an incredible challenge to put yeah. together, but it was so much fun to teach. Um, and I was also using engineering, more engineering design-type challenges, even in my AP Physics classes, because you know, that's sort of what I did. Um, and I put together a proposal for a Fulbright Distinguished Teaching Award, um, asking to investigate similar things in Singapore. I got that. I spent six months in Singapore in 2013 as a Fulbright teacher, and then by the time I came back and was in the classroom, the next generation science standards, um, at least in Rhode Island, had been adopted. They had just sort of been published, and Rhode Island was an early adopter. So I had um, I had a lot of people in my local community asking me, you know, how do we do this? How do we get, you know, a second-grade mm-hmm. teacher to teach some engineering? Yep. And how do we really infuse some engineering into you know, our science classes, because, you know, one of four disciplinary core areas in the NGSS is engineering, and it's predominantly engineering design. So I tried to do both, teach a full course uh, load and and do some outreach and got overwhelmed. (laughs) Um, You know, somebody said to me, you know, maybe you could, you know, take this further. So I decided, well, you know, my kids were sort of just about getting out of college. Um, Maybe it's time, you know, the youngest was just about getting out of college. Maybe it's time to try yet something new, and I did. Um, Part of my reason for wanting to do that, I guess it was uh, one more overriding reason, was the number of students that I had in my engineering course who would say to me as high school juniors and seniors that this was the first time science had been fun in a long time. And, you know, I mean, that's great to hear when you're the teacher standing in front of these children, but it's sort of heartbreaking because you can't fix that in one year in many cases. You know, you've lost some really creative and innovative and talented young people, and there may not be enough time to get them back before they choose which way they want to go in college. Now I work with teachers and students from K through 12. And as we all know, kindergartners are the best little engineers. So, Yeah, nice. Hey, let's take a break, and I want to talk some more about this and talk about your experiences in that transition from um, 
from being a teacher to being a consultant. Uh, and I, I think we'll hold off. I want to talk about Singapore. I want to hold off on on that, although that sounds like it was uh, an, ex- an inspiring experience. But why don't we take a break and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this transition point. Okay. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, Ann Kaiser. Stay, stay with us. And in the next segment, we're going to talk about this transition from teaching to um, helping others teach engineering K-12. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consulting to help transform your organization or educational institution. And if you want to ask our guests questions or make comments, uh, go to Twitter and use the hashtag, hashtag Big Beacon. And so we're rejoined by Ann Kaiser of Project Engine. And before the break, we were talking about uh, your experience, Ann, as a, as a teacher and this moment at which um, you, you were overwhelmed in trying to help others uh, do this engineering thing that was also coming along in the the new standards, which seems to be a force uh, pushing some of this. So let's talk about um, 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 let's talk a little bit about about what your business does. What what does uh, what does Project Engine do? What what kind of services do you provide? Well, I think like any, um, actually, I'm beyond the startup phase now. I am told by my business development advisor, but like any new company, um, it is it's an evolving mission. Um, it was started. Uh, my original assumption in, in setting up the business was that it would be some sort of combination of different professional development platforms. Um, I personally believe that embedded coaching, you know, putting someone in the classroom with the teacher is, is the most effective professional development because most 
teachers will tell you, you know, they go to great workshops and they're all fired up and they get back to their classroom and the reality of those 25 stories that are sitting in front of them and all the various things that teachers are required to do makes that that change or that new pedagogy or methodology challenging to implement. Um, Embedded coaching, though, is is not the most cost-effective for many schools, so we've also developed... Um, and I do do some embedded coaching. I'm actually doing three days of it next week. But um, most schools really still want more of that workshop model, um, and we try and make sure that the workshops are incredibly interactive, that we model the idea of, okay, you can, you can re-engineer how you teach. We sort of apply the whole engineering design process to what we do in the workshops. Um, We've also found that a lot of schools will have their entire faculty come. A K-8 school might have every teacher in the room for a workshop so that you're creating more of a cultural shift in the school. Um, I yes. personally think if you're going to really bite off all of that change, you probably need a series of you know different professional development events throughout the year. You definitely can't do it in one afternoon or even one day, but... You know, anything helps. Um, what happens, though, after we work with teachers is um, particularly when we do the embedded coaching model, we help them develop an engineering project they can use in their classroom that they're comfortable with. Yes. And what's happened as these past two years have gone on is I have more and more requests for, you know, curriculum. And I, I hate to use that word. It's really more customized uh, materials and projects that teachers can use. So, you know, we have a whole sort of effort underway to, you know, come up with curriculum that, that proves to the teachers you can connect all that stuff that they tell you you have to teach into a well-constructed project. And you can drive a need to know in your students and some learning by application that will give you better results than traditional, you know, passive techniques in the classroom. So we we kind of have this whole curriculum line starting to develop, and we're trying to keep it sort of as customizable as possible um, so that teachers feel that they're teaching from some area of their expertise because it's challenging to say to any teacher, even if they're a high school teacher, if it's a high school biology teacher, if you say to them, okay, now we'd like you to put a little engineering in your classroom, you're yeah. asking them to stretch, you know, beyond their area of expertise. So yeah. I guess what the way we work is really predominantly we like to start working with people on a PD, in a PD format, a professional development format of some kind, yeah. and then we like to stay with them somewhat to help them use different material, and then to get them to the point where they design their own. I mean, my goal is not to be living in any one school for a very long time. Um, it's to get the teachers to the point where they can re-engineer what they're doing. Yeah, so this uh, raises a whole series of questions that we probably won't have time to explore, but you know, I was listening to you, and the, so, so part of it is that people basically are comfortable doing what they're comfortable doing, and so you have to start where your client is. And, and so in K-12, that's professional development and training seminars and so forth, even though what you'd like to do is something in order to get something really different happening in the classroom, you'd like to 
be more hands-on and spend time in coaching. That's that's unusual. It uh, doesn't scale very well, and 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 um, and it's difficult. And then, as you also said, and I completely agree, is that what we're talking about here is a a really big culture shift. But if you say that to anyone, they get really scared by it. So, essentially, the the first part I like to think of what you were just saying in the the through the lens of the elephant rider and path model of the Heath brothers. The, the elephant is emotion. The the um, the, um, the rider is rational rationality, and and the path is is sort of making things easy. So the creation of curriculum and things that allow them to do stuff easier. That's like that's the moral equivalent of a different textbook or something. It allows people to do something without having to invent something completely new or creative. It gives them it's a nice balance between structure and and freedom. And I hear a sensitivity to that in in what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and the other thing that I think drives everything we do, and we make this very clear to the teachers and administrators we work with, is that I truly believe that the teacher is the most important person in the room. Um, and I'm not saying that the students don't matter. We're there to educate students, however you define education. But um, that does not get to the students if the teacher is not, you know, well-equipped to deliver it somehow. So, you know, I, I try and approach everything from the viewpoint of busy teachers with countless pressures on them um, and really get them to kind of, actually, you're trying to create almost a, a need to know an intrinsic motivation in the teacher um, and support that. I think it's there. It's just how do you support that and let that sort of blossom and create that change in the classroom? Yeah, so the, actually the, the educational discussions are, are just rife with all kinds of polarity. So, uh, and I almost all, unequivoc- all unequivocal statements in education are wrong, including the one I just made. Um, the, that, you know, so if we say the most important per- person in the classroom is a teacher, well, yes and no. And actually the polarity of student-centered learning and teacher-centered learning they're both right. We need both of them. And so the question is, at a particular stage in development of a transformational effort, who's got to take the lead? And and what I the way I, I interpreted what you said was that, that in making a change like this, the students have been taught to be obedient. They're not actually going to make change. They're just going to do what they've been told. The teacher has to lead to some other place where maybe at some point the student actually is more important than they've been in the past. Yeah, that's... That's a good sort of. That's a more complicated way of saying, but I, I just yeah. it's it's like and and that's one of the things that's so interesting about these reform efforts is, yeah, you know, when you say something like, "Well, we want to do like people looked at a whole new engineer," the book Mark and I wrote and said, "Well, you guys want to create fluffy engineers that design bridges that fall down," and and the <laughs> answer, you know, and I I constantly use the example of of Olin College as being the school that is list on the list of the hardest programs on the planet and the most fun mm-hmm. that we want we want we want things that we in the past have not had so, you know we we've had hard before but but fun has not been in the same sentence we mm-hmm. as we want engaged students um with rigor and and there are all these contradictions and the way to get the contradictions is to hold the opposites in mind simultaneously and say well what's the good part of student-centeredness or what's the what's the good part of structure and what's the 
what's the bad part of structure? What's the good part of freedom? And and we, uh, I, I really like, um, we've had him on the show before, uh, Barry Johnson's work on polarity management in this regard. Mm-hmm. So let, let's come back to, um, so you've been in business two years. You've been telling us a little bit about what, what you've learned. What, what are what are maybe the one or two things that you were surprised to learn, the biggest surprises that you've learned in, in your business? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the first one would have to do with students, and I saw this with my own students. Um, and, 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 you know, when you go back and look at it, it shouldn't be surprising. But, you know, when you look at that idea of, okay, you know, a good engineer needs to create uh, consider multiple solutions, whether you call it, brainstorming or just divergent thinking or the idea of considering multiple solutions, um, most students are terrified of that because they're looking for that one right answer because we have created that environment that honors the one right answer. And as engineers, you and I both know there's never one single perfect solution uh, to real problems. So that and I could probably, and I would love to be able to do this, sort of chart how that gets worse as you go from, you know, that the happy little not-afraid-to-fail engineers of maybe yeah. K through 2, and then you start getting into 4th through 8th grade, and, uh, you know, they start not being as willing to take those chances or to think big, um, and it's really very much shut down. Um in a lot of high school students. So we've gotten to the point where in workshops we actually do a lot of different sort of activities and um, to make different suggestions about how teachers can move students beyond that. You know, we don't any any more in an engineering design sort of project unit or curriculum, we don't use the word here's your problem that you have to solve. We always say challenge. Because yeah. we found, particularly in high school, when you say problem, half the kids go directly to answer. One right um, book, one, one right answer, yeah. Yeah. So the word challenge seems to keep things a little bit bigger. You know, it lets them explore that design space a little bit more. But, I mean, if you think about it, you know, school, as it progresses, becomes a more and more highly constrained environment. Um, and my goal is not to make everything this nebulous, you can do whatever you want, but there's that sweet spot where, you know, again, there is some student control, there's teacher control, and there isn't always one right answer. Well, and there are different ways to manage these polarities. I, I'm reminded, we had uh, Sheila Tobias on the show not long ago, and she, and she was, there's a nice story, well, not a nice story, it's actually kind of a frightening story, but that about a young woman not going into engineering because she thought she was smart enough, her IQ was sufficient, but her OQ wasn't sufficient, her obedience quotient wasn't mm-hmm. sufficient. And so we, we've got people, we've, you know, we've, the, the people who stick with the math and science to, to say grades 11, 12, and so forth are on the, are already on the uh, obedience treadmill, and then now we say, nope, um, there isn't one right answer. Sorry, we, we uh, confused you, and and uh, there are actually more than one right answer. And how can that be? And we don't actually give them very good, very good answers, other than to say that well, engineering is different than science in some unexplained and nebulous, mm-hmm. nebulous way. So, okay, so um, this actually is the second week in a row we've uh, been talking about K twelve uh, engineering. Uh, and we've and it and we've already talked a little bit about the forces the 
you know the 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 new standards are are dictating that this be there and so they're they're sort of exogenous i mean uh i get nervous when such standards come down from on mm-hmm. high and how they get interpreted i'm sure you do too but what's your what's oh, yeah. your take on the current landscape of uh the teaching of engineering in k12 what's how far has it penetrated? Uh, how's it showing up? What you're as a practitioner and someone who cares what what's going on in your your view? Um, well, I see probably as you do the full gamut, um, and I, you know, I I work uh, pretty hard to try and move people off of uh, the assumption that you know engineering is all about you know calculator buttons and and you know the typical you know what what the National Academy of Engineering is trying to overcome that typical you know view of what an engineer does um sure. I also work hard you know cuz I I go into science classrooms or meet with groups of science teachers and they tell me they're not doing STEM um STEM kind of gets to me quite frankly sometimes um you know, and I, I point out, you know, well, engineering, think of it as the E, as the vowel, and not the vowel, the verb, or the connecting part of STEM, because, you know, we're, we're using the science and math, hopefully, to create technologies, that being anything we've created to solve the human problem. So, yeah. you know, I see people kind of lumping engineering with, let's teach everybody the code, lumping engineering with, oh, we have a robotics class. Um, and lumping it with computer science, and all those things are valid, and they're great, you know, different ways of getting students excited about technical fields, but they're not as holistic in my mind. Those are sort of some of the tools that certain engineers might use. So I, you know, my whole, where I tend to get the, the most traction is really in convincing teachers that, you know, now you'll get all those kids who kind of sit back in science class. If you do this right, it's engaging, it's creative, they'll jump in. And I get countless stories of, you know, students who used to be quiet in class and who were timid about, you know, taking a chance, all of a sudden starting to shine. So, you know, I view engineering maybe a little bit differently than some of the people that talk about, oh, we have to have it in K through 12, but I don't think I'm that far off. I was just at a um, a panel that was convened at the National Academy of Engineering about increasing teacher voice in K through 12 engineering. And there were professional development experts there, university experts. And the consensus is that it's really those ideas of the design process that we should be focusing on because that's where there's so many transferable skills to all disciplines. Um, and that's where you create, you know, technically literate citizens moving forward. And, you know, we don't need every child in school to be an engineer. We don't need that many engineers. Yes. So, yeah, and and I'm, yeah, I guess one of the things, I, I want to go back a little bit, and you, you, so you said that, you, there are teachers that tell you that they're not doing STEM, but by that, they're doing S and M. They're not doing T and E. Is that what they mean? I think I I think they mean honestly. A lot of what I hear is is they don't know what they're expected to be doing to be saying they're they're quote unquote doing STEM. Um, mm. uh, you know, I always I, I mean, if you're a science teacher, on some level, 
you have to be doing some kind of STEM somewhere. Um, I just think we have this acronym that now pigeonholes people yet again. Um, yeah. And really it was intended, I think, to be an acronym that broke down some of those silos. Um well, I was at the meeting where that acronym was coined back in, <laughs> I think it was in the 80s or 90s with a bunch of um, young engineering and science professors. And I took umbrage at it then, and I take umbrage at it now in the following sense. And 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 um, and actually, I, I'll take a little bit of a, somewhere I was, you, you wrote a sentence, since engineering is the application of science, quote unquote. And, and that's a, that's how engineering is taught. Uh, so there's that that we think that is actually the fault of our engineering education. But if you if you think about hi, hi, this historically, there's no chicken or egg pri- problem. Mm-hmm. Science and math are maybe you know, ten thousand years old, whereas people were making stone axes, which was pretty complex technology two and a half million years ago before they even had vocal cords. Mm-hmm. So before people could speak, they were making artifacts that actually helped them solve problems in their environment. So there's no there's no chicken or egg problem, and yet we've gotten to this place where the 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 tool has become the master. The the science and math are sort of the things that now take over, and mm-hmm. they're more they have more status in many ways, and they are primary. and And so now we have teachers that don't can't even do the primary the primary human activity is technology, and we've got teachers that that don't even know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I that that's actually, I think that's the problem, I mean, that we, S-T-E-M are equal, but they're not equal. Technology and engineering are, are primary and uh, predecessors to S&M mm-hmm. and actually, and, and, and more engaging, um, uh, more emotionally engaging. So we've got the whole thing backward. We're going we're gonna to take a break soon, but I'll give you the last word in the segment. Comment. I would totally agree, and I think the the line you're quoting for me was probably in my uh, the technical paper that came from my Fulbright research, which was really kind of aimed more at teachers convincing them yeah. that here's how you can get students to learn the science you're trying to teach them through application. Yeah. But um, I mean, I 100, 100% agree with you. I mean, we I do a whole full-day workshop on sort of called Engage Your Inner Engineer. I mean, as humans, we engineer. Um, and But we're faced with this structure right now where we have to justify how do we get that engineering back into the curriculum. And I think um, that was sort of what I was referring to in that paper. And I yeah. think it's the same thing that you're saying, that, you know, engineering and technology are not primary because of the way school is developed, education has developed. Um, and now we're trying to find a way to get, get them in there. Yeah, and and I, I didn't mean to take you. It sounded it was hammering you a little harder than no, you deserved. I realized I you were trying it. to communicate. <laughs> you were trying to communicate with people that viewed things that way and and connect with them. But it seems to me that part of the part of the the cultural problem that we have is getting people to understand how important and primary engineering and technology are, and that they that they are prior to math and science and that you can do a lot of, en- a lot of good engineering um, without, much, without much math or without mm-hmm. much science. You can do a lot of good technical design that solves problems without any of that stuff. And it's about how things work and how to make them work better. And math and science are sometimes a way to do that primarily, but oftentimes they're a way to refine things. 
Why don't we take a break? Let's take a break. I want to. I want. I. Uh, you've had some. You mentioned your experiences in in Singapore, and uh, I've I've had some experiences in Singapore, and I want to I want to um, compare notes with you a little bit about your experiences in Singapore in the next segment. Sure. Okay. All right. Let's do that. Let's and uh, let's take a bit of a break. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest Ann Kaiser, a project engine. In the next segment, we're gonna we're gonna talk about our mutual experiences in Singapore. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon itself. Join us this fall for free webinars on 21st century leadership and change acceleration. Watch bigbeacon.org for details or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're rejoined uh, by Ann Kaiser. And in the last segment, we were talking about uh, what's going on in K-12 and what's the the scene look like and we were we we're also debating some philosophy of engineering and technology vis-a-vis math and science so um and um one of the special experiences you've had was uh and you was back in 2013 uh before you started project engine you you got this nice fulbright award and you went to you went to singapore and did some stuff there with uh, teaching engineering in the classroom what was that about what'd you do um, well, the way the Fulbright uh, Distinguished Teaching Awards work is you're not necessarily sent there to teach. You're sent there to be able to research something that, you know, you've developed an inquiry project over around. Um, and I was fortunate enough when I, when I arrived in Singapore, the people at the Ministry of Education and the Academy of Singapore Teachers has, had set up a meeting with a relatively new school called the School of Science and Technology. Um, they were a secondary school, so that would be about our seventh grade through our tenth grade. Yep. Um, and they, I met with the principal and vice principal, and all they talked about were was project based learning and you know weaving all of the the different disciplines into 
you know, what would almost sound like engineering projects, and I was like, oh, this is, like, perfect. You know, these are my people. And then they said, well, you need to go observe classes. And I did, and the teachers were still using pretty much lecture, uh, and even to the point where they would refer to very specifics about what would be on the O-levels. And so there was a lot of drill and practice. So I went back and I, I said to the vice principal, this is not what you described. She said, well, we keep trying to get them to teach differently. We keep bringing in people uh, to work with them, but this is the way they were taught at the National Institute of Education. This is the way it's always been taught here in Singapore, and everybody's done really well in terms of you know, international exposure. So there's a lot of resistance to changing that, sort of if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. Sure. Um, so, you know, I spent more time with the teachers. They were they were really great to me at the school. They gave me an office a desk in the faculty room, which, as all teachers will tell you, is where everything really happens. <laughs> I um, was able to kind of get to know some of the teachers, and we started talking about, you know, some of the different things that are, that are going on in education, and they were willing to uh, try an engineering design project in their classroom. Um, it was anything super high tech. They were at the point where they were covering a lot of energy concepts. Uh, they were moving from kinematics to dynamics. Yep. Um, and I suggested a mousetrap car project. So we sort of, you know, really kind of were careful. I worked with the two teachers that I was going to work with to develop a project that fit into what they were trying to teach. That gave them checkpoints where they could convince themselves that the students were learning the content, and it worked, and they still use that project there, and those two teachers have become internal advocates in their own faculty for using more of those techniques. So that was sort of, I also got to see other schools and see, um, you know, some of the other things that were going on, but at that time, um, they, you know, the government really does want uh, teachers to teach differently, but there is still, you know, the, until those O-levels and A-levels change yeah. to match that, there's going to be a lot of pushback from parents and from teachers in some cases. Well, from this, yeah, the whole thing is so culturally embedded and the yeah. culture of assessment is so strong in, in right. Singapore. I mean, I had a similar experience at the university level in Singapore when I went there in 2010 and the desire for design-centric curriculum at the National University of Singapore across the street from the school you were teaching at. Mm-hmm. I think we may have been we may have been in town at the same I time. I was I there. I could have waved across. What is that, Commonwealth? Yeah, we could have waved at each <laughs> other. I was over at you, I was over in Newtown at uh, 2013. Yeah. So you've got these you've got these uh, brand new campuses with buildings that say "Create" on them and signs on the streets that say "Innovate." We are the world. You you are innovative, and yet you know. So this is done by a, a Ministry of Education that is strongly planning oriented, and they're you know they want to plan. I, I think for me the central um, conundrum of Singapore is this successful planning culture that they have and the desire for more innovation and creativity it's mm-hmm. so like you want they want structured innovation that doesn't go outside the box of things that are planned i think anyways uh, the contradictions are so interesting but it it um some of the work some of the work in singapore for me led to my first faculty development seminars that helped 
faculty to actually trust their students enough so that students can do projects of their own mm-hmm. design at, at the in the college level. And it sounds like you were facing some of the cultural resistance of this is how we do things here, and yet you you found some people willing to do something different. Yeah, and I think um, I think we underestimate how many people are willing to do something different. Sometimes, I mean, that's been another thing you asked me before. What did I? Uh, learn sort of as yep. I've gone through this business. Um, yep. And I think that's, that's you know, the same thing I saw in Singapore. I think um, people need to feel empowered um, if, if you're going to ask them to create significant change. Um, you know, it can't be forced on people, but I think once you sort of open that door and tell people that, you know, you, you can do this. You know, you can, you can create this change just like I can. Um, it, a pretty amazing thing starts to happen. So I, I think, you know, when you look at the inertia in the educational system and even in the, the daily structure of it in most places, it's yes. challenging for teachers to sort of take that leap. But I, I find that more of them than I expect really you know, do want to do it, and it's just sort of once there's that little door that opens, um, amazing things start to happen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and, you know, some of it is to make sure that when you do it, that you do it with the people who want to do it. So often mm-hmm. in educational circles, we hear, well, let's, let's, get, let's get teacher buy-in. You know, like we've got to get everyone on board to do these things, to do them at all, whereas you went in and you found a couple of teachers that were willing to do it. I went into a program where this was expected to be done. Um, but so often I hear when people are talking about changing a department or a college or, or a school that we everyone needs to agree to do it this way. Well, actually, no. Somebody's got to do it differently to show the cool stuff that comes from doing it this different way so other people can feel Mm-hmm. feel the change so that mm-hmm. they, they people change the way the conservatives change is they feel it in their hearts and then they change their minds we think right. they change their minds first but they they change hearts first and and uh, you know i mean that's sort of how i conduct every workshop i mean i know there will be people there that that it's not going to work right away but you're always hoping you have those 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 change makers you know the people that are are willing to kind of go out on a limb and Sort of, they they bring everybody else along with them eventually, and I think most teachers, if they're in a school and all of a sudden students are talking about a class and they're excited and they see students rushing to get to a certain class, most teachers start to peek in the door to see what's going on, um, and so you you sort of set the whole thing into motion, and that actually is what happened um, in Singapore. Um, and you'll be happy to know I have an email today from one of my colleagues there saying that nice. they are trying to get overall more engineering into the curriculum in Singapore, um, particularly on the secondary level, because they, they want more creative thinkers, you know. So nice. we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're coming to the end of the show, and we're going to have to yeah. wrap up here. And I, I guess i uh, give you kind of the last word here. Uh, Content-wise, if you like, if if there's like one thing you want to uh, leave with our listeners, uh, what would that be? Just briefly. Um, that you know, we really need to think about 
you know, what we're teaching these young people. I mean, we all know that we can't predict the future, and I always tell teachers that they are creating the future. That they're right there in front of them. Um, but that designed world that we all live in, you know, from the design in the classroom and the structures that are built in the classroom to everything that's going out outside needs to be part of every child's education. And in many cases, it's not. There are nice. too many decisions those young people will have to make that require that they understand the process of how all these things get to where they are, how they were created. They don't have to be engineers, but they do need to be um, effective citizens in the world Great. that they're going to live in. So uh, 15 seconds, uh, how can people get uh, in touch with you, uh, find out more about your work? Your company? Um, they can follow us on Twitter at at Project Engine. They can email me, a Kaiser at projectengine.com, or they can go to our website, just Google Project Engine. And it's uh, Project Engine, one word with no E on the end. Great. Thanks for joining us, Anne. It's been great having you on the show. It's been great talking to you, Dave. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Dan Kaiser. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. And join us after the show. Anne's going to join us on Twitter at hashtag bigbeacon. You can chat with uh, on Twitter with, uh, with Anne. Use chat. T-C-H-A-T dot I-O and uh, get the hashtag added automatically and join us next week, same time, same channel in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.